turn back with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 4. And let's ask the Lord to help us this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the amazing privilege of being called your sons and your daughters. To be counted worthy to be part of your family. Father, the blessing of being able to come together corporately to worship you in some small part of what we will one day partake in. And Lord, I ask as we look at your word this morning in this very weighty chapter, that you would open our eyes and give us a sense of what John was seeing as you revealed yourself to him. Lord, we are wholly inadequate to preach this, to listen to this. And yet here we are. We ask for your help this morning. We thank you and praise you for the forgiveness of sins, the fact that we are made worthy through the work, redemption of our Savior that we're able to get a glimpse into your throne room this morning. We ask for your help. In your name we pray. All right, Revelation chapter 4. Last week we looked at the first three verses, and we have a shifting scene from the vision that John has as he addresses the seven churches in the first three chapters. And we looked... Um, the first three verses of chapter four and John is called up to the throne room of the highest. And we see a transition from a vision of the holy place where we see the seven candlesticks to John being brought into the holy of holies. And we talked about the centrality of the throne that we see in chapter four that carries with it um, through the entire book of Revelation, the fact that you some 47 times in the book of Revelation to help us to understand that God's throne is prominently displayed in the book of Revelation. This is for the seven churches. This is a continuation of those letters to the seven churches. This is for the encouragement of the churches, for their edification, their growth, their security while they're in the midst of intense persecution and it is also for those that have ears to hear which means if we're born of the spirit of god and we are here as god's children this morning this is just as much for us and our encouragement we have um, a view here in the book of revelation chapter four that takes us we talked about this last week it takes us from where all the helter-skelter is, where all of the traffic and congestion is to a higher view. John is called up to the throne room, the control tower, if you will, the eternal control tower. And John is called to see things from God's perspective. Isaiah 55, verse 8, we're reminded, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways or your ways, my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. I had originally planned to tackle this in two messages, and the more I dug into this, the deeper I got, the more inadequate I felt, and the more I realized it wasn't happening in two messages. So this is two of three for chapter four. We're going to look at point four this morning, and that is this, around the throne. And around the throne, we see the invited ones, the heavenly courtiers, if you will, those who are attending to the king. And we've got a lot of ground to cover, so Mark and I were joking about that this morning. I'm going to give you lots of references, so if you're taking notes, fantastic. I encourage you to do that. Write the reference down because I will read the passage. We'll be moving quickly because there's much ground to cover. So buckle up. So verse four, around the throne were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. 
what's the first question that you ask as you look at that? Who are they, right? Okay, good, so I'm not the only one. Who are they? What is this a picture of? Well, thankfully, like everything else that we've looked at, scripture interprets scripture and helps us to see the bigger picture here. There are clues that the word of God gives us in this regard. I want you to turn over to Revelation 21. We're going to start slow and then we'll go fast. So you have time to get to Revelation 21. Revelation 21, verse 9. Remember, these are symbolic pictures of reality, okay? Verse 9, then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Now, who is that? The church. Thank you. So you expect to see something different than what you're about to see. Look at verse 10. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem. Well, wait a minute. I thought you were going to show me the bride. Well, he is, but he shows him in type and symbol the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of the heaven of God. And listen to the explanation. Having the glory of God. It's radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. And it had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates of the names of the 12 tribes of the Son of Israel were inscribed. And on the east three gates, on the north three gates, the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And on the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of 12 or were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the lambs or the lamb. Do you see 12 and 12 here? Anybody? Simple math. It's not a trick question. All right. So hold that thought. There's our first clue. I want you to see as we look at these 24 elders, how scripture describes them. What's the first thing that it tells us about them? It says they are, they are seated in 12 thrones. I want you to see, first of all, as I said a few minutes ago, this is a continuation of the letter, the letters written to the seven churches. This is not a new vision, okay? But we can go back to the first few chapters to give us insight into what, what's going on here. They are seated, let me put it this way, they're seated in a promised position, okay? Well, what is the promise? Look at Revelation 3.21. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Who is this talking to? In Revelation chapter 321, we're, we're talking to the letter, the, it's the letter to the church in Laodicea. Who is Jesus promising will sit with him on thrones as they conquer? Church in Laodicea, and by extension and implication, it is the church. Ephesians 1.20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places. Paul goes into chapter 2 and verse 6 and says this, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Who is us? Paul says Christ is raised up from the dead and seated on the right hand of the Father. He's seated in heavenly places when? Now. Okay. Paul says, and he has raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Who is us? It's a good question. So who is he talking to? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. It's written to who? The church. All right. So when the question would then be, would then be pertinent, when is us seated? When are the us's seated? You guys warm? Y'all look like you're about to fall asleep. It's warm in here, isn't it? Yes. Yes. When are the us's seated? Well, Paul says 
in Ephesians chapter one, two, verse six, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now there's two words there, raised and seated, that give us a clue as to the tense. How do you know that? ED? We learned that in English some time ago, didn't we? The ED ending means what? Past tense. It's talking about this. these two verbs are in the past. Well, how is that possible? What happens with us when we are born again of the Spirit of God? We're immediately raised with Him, spiritually. But what happens to us when we die? Do we believe that we go into this state of nothingness? No. We're immediately, to be absent from the body, what? Be present with the Lord. Here is a picture of the church reigning with Christ. And guys, I want you to see this. It's now, right now. What happens to those saints who have preceded us in death? Where are they? They're in heaven with the Lord, reigning with Christ. That's what this is a picture of. In 1 Corinthians 15.25, it says, For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. Psalm 110.11, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. What is Christ doing now and where are the saints that preceded us? They're reigning with Christ right now. That's what this is a picture of. But secondly, what else do we see about the 24 elders? How are they dressed? They are clothed in white. With crowns, yes. We'll get to the crowns in just a second. That's, that's an interesting conversation. But they're clothed in white. What is the white? Yes, the righteousness of Christ. See, you guys are picking up on this. We got this down pat, right? It's, sim- it's sim- symbolic to illustrate and teach us truth. You guys remember those Tide commercials where they would compare the dingy sock with the, with the Tide sock? Of course you do, right? How many of you have the Tide socks on or the dingy socks on? I won't ask you to show them. But we all know what we're talking about, right? You get the new socks right out of the pack, and they're white, white. And then you wear them for a couple months, and even though you wash them in Tide, which is false advertising, they still get dingy. The word white here means brilliant, brilliantly white. It makes tied white look dingy. And it's talking about the perfection of the righteousness of Christ. Revelation 3, 4. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. And they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. Isaiah 64, 6 reminds us we have all become like one who is unclean. When we did our study through the book of Leviticus, it went into detail and sometimes grotesque detail about what made someone unclean. Remember that? Multiple examples. And Isaiah reminds us that our righteousness is um, just like one who is unclean. The best we can do leaves us in a state of uncleanness. All our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. We must have the righteousness of Christ. And that's the picture here. Revelation 6, 11, Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Uh, Rita pointed out the third aspect, their crowns. This was this is always a, an interesting subject to me. Crowns. How do we get them? What are they for? It's the best Christian award, right? The crown here is a picture of the victor's wreath. We had a couple of our ladies who ran a race yesterday and got a metal to hang around their neck not quite like the winner's diadem that, that, that you'd wear on your head but similar concept the crown here is a picture of the victor's wreath 
in Revelation chapter two, I want you to see this again, promise to who? The church, church in Smyrna. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. And I will give you what? The crown of life. Revelation 3.11 to the church in Philadelphia. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have that, that no one may seize your crown. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.8, henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, the Lord, uh, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. What is the crown of righteousness? It's the word justification. How do you earn that crown? For those of you crown earners out there, how do you earn the crown of justification? Justification is the act of God, whereby he declares us to be without sin. We don't earn it. So here is the crown of righteousness. James 1.12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. This is a picture of what? Eternal life. How do you earn that? Can't. First Peter 5, 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. I want you to see this. These are inherited rewards of Christ. Justification, eternal life, all given to us. And if you read and you remember what we just read, In the latter part of chapter four, what do the 24 elders do with those crowns? Remember that? Yes, they lay them at Christ's feet. Steve Lawson says this, salvation is not a reward for the righteous, but a gift for the guilty. We do not earn these things. These are an inheritance that we get from Christ. Colossians chapter one, verse 12, giving thanks to the father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. How are you qualified to share in that inheritance? Grace. Colossians 3.24, knowing that the Lord from the Lord, you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Hebrews 9.15, therefore, He is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Wait a minute. It's how well we keep the covenant that that grants us the inheritance. No, we talked about that this morning. David couldn't keep the covenant. He trained and raised his son who, guess what? Couldn't keep the covenant. Who kept the covenant? Christ kept it on our behalf. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 7, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Listen to this, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. If we could mess up our inheritance, we would. It's out of our reach, guys. We can't mess it up. Verse 5, who by God's power being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you are being grieved by various trials. So the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation. So what is the application here as we look at these 12 elders, 24 elders? Well, commentators have a lot to say about it and not all agree, obviously. But what are the prominent 12s that we see in the Old Testament and the New Testament? The Revelation uh, 21 points out. How many tribes of Israel? 12. How many, how many disciples? How many is that when you add them together? 24. I think this is a picture here of the saints in their in, in their entirety. 
Old and New Testament that God has brought to glory. This is symbolic of the body of Christ. So the question then becomes, what does this mean to the seven churches that this is being written to? And also, what does it mean to us? How does this apply? I want to give you just a few points of application to encourage you this morning as we think about this picture of the 24 elders. Think about God's grace and inviting them into his presence. Think about that. How does this apply to us? Well, Colossians 3.1 says, If you then have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Kind of like the Bible teacher just told us, Matthew 6.33, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Paul tells the Colossian church, if you have been raised with Christ, seek those things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Philippians 3.20, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and their glory, and they glory in their shame with minds set, listen, on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So, Just want to give you briefly on this point, four points of application. First of all, raise your gaze. I remember when uh, my dad was teaching me how to drive. And my immediate challenge as a new driver was was looking right in front of the car. New drivers, you know what I'm talking about. Why? Because you're like, well, what if something's right in front of me? I don't want to hit it. And he would constantly tell me. Lift your eyes up, pick your eyes up, look down the road. And if you look down the road, what's right in front of you will take care of itself. And I've told our new drivers the same thing. Look down the road. Don't look right in front of you. Not saying don't look in front of you, by the way. Um, Don't look at stuff on the side. But raise your gaze. We are so focused on the here and now, aren't we? We have problems. We have challenges. We have mouths to feed, jobs to work, dishes to wash, houses to clean. There are so many things that pull our gaze down. The whole emphasis of Revelation chapter 4 is to encourage the church to look up and to see things from God's perspective. We're to see things as God does. That's the point of encouragement for the church. If we begin to see things like God sees them, our focus is completely different, isn't it? Completely different. Then Paul says, as we just read, imitate these saints. Prepare yourself for what is coming. Live with the end in mind. Have you ever been to a funeral where when you went there, The eternal destiny of the subject party is in doubt. And the preacher does his best job to preach that person into heaven. You ever been there? What if we as Christians lived our lives in such a way that there was no doubt at our funeral where we were going? No doubt. We're to imitate the saints that have gone before us. Live in such a way as that we remove all doubts at our funeral is where we are going. Thirdly, know our citizenship. Paul reminds us in Philippians 3.20 that I just read, our citizenship is in heaven. Now, that does not preclude us from being good citizens here. Not at all. We are to be. And we are to be engaged. But... But be encouraged with this as we look around us in our temporal situation and we get very discouraged at the way we see things going as citizenships of this or citizens of this world know the fact that anything that happens here 
cannot touch our citizenship there. That's what really matters. Know our citizenship, know our inheritance. We just talked about that. And know our destination. We looked a few weeks ago at the fact that we are not earth dwellers. When you look through the book of Revelation, every time you find a place where these are earth dwellers, dwellers of the earth, we're reminded of the fact that we don't belong here. We are pilgrims. We are sojourners. We are moving through this, this, this world, and we are headed for somewhere else. But we sure do put roots down here sometimes. Drop anchor. And that's, that's, that's the calling here as Christians. Don't drop anchor here. This is not where we're staying. Don't worry about building your forever home. We're talking about Solomon building his house. Well, was Solomon living in that house today? How important was that house? You know, humanly speaking, I'm sure it was awesome to see. Pretty amazing to look at. But Solomon's not enjoying that house right now. The fourth thing is rest in his work. I want you to notice what the saints are doing. What are the 24 elders doing in their posture? They're seated. What does that tell you? You guys are all seated this morning. Some of you are starting to nod off to sleep. Pinch yourself, elbow each other, whatever you have to do. Don't rest yet, okay? Rest this afternoon. But the picture of the 24 elders is that they are resting around the throne. It is a picture of the fact that they are resting in the finished work of Christ, who is our Sabbath. What are we resting in? Well, rest in this, Philippians 1.6. Paul says, I am sure of this, that he who has begun a good work, what? Will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. You know, guys, we deserve nothing. Have you ever thought and dwelt on the fact that some of us, it seems like or feels like sometimes we would get into heaven by the skin of our teeth? Have you ever felt that way before? This picture of the 24 elders should show us that even though we deserve absolutely nothing, and it's nothing short of miraculous that God has saved us by his grace, But the scripture says he saves us to the uttermost. He doesn't just save us by the skin of our teeth to rescue us from the flames of hell. But what does he do? He's given these people robes of white. They have the perfection of Christ. The imputed perfection of Christ. Not just in his death, but also in the fact that he lived a perfect life. They have the saints in heaven, and you and I have it now. If we're in Christ, we have his perfect obedience applied to our account. We talked about the law, and we'll see that again in a few minutes here. I can't keep it perfectly. Can you? So how do we get the perfection that's needed to be in the presence of God? It is only through the imputed work of Christ. But notice this, Hebrews 7.22. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. We talk about being saved to the uttermost. We're talking about complete salvation, perfect salvation. He doesn't just drag us across the finish line to escape the flames of hell. He has given us an inheritance. Verse five, from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. These are symbols, again, of what we're seeing in the heavenly throne room. And we'll see the picture of the triune Godhead shown to us in this. Last week, we looked at 
the father who sits in the throne. And remember, there's no visual description of what he is like. It's, it's given to us in color and texture, but there's nothing there for us to make an idol of. But, but after verse five, we, we see the picture of, of what aspect of the triune Godhead is displayed in verse six. Anybody see it? We see the father sitting in the throne. What's next? Verse six. We see the Holy Spirit shown here in just a second. I will show you that. Um, for, uh, verse five, I'm sorry. Um, remember, we talked about this when we were addressing the letter to the seven churches. What are the seven spirits of God? Are there seven different spirits of God? Is that is that what the picture is? No, it's a picture of complete, the full spirit of God in his perfection. And there are seven torches of fire. So this is a picture here, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And, and I want to ask you this. What are on the minds of the seven churches when they read this? When John is writing this to the seven churches, he says, there came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. Where does this take you in your mind? Mount Sinai. You don't say. Yes. Go there for just a second. Exodus chapter 19. In Exodus 19, verse 16, on the morning of the third day, this was after Moses goes up the mountain. There were what? Thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew, grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. And the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. What happened in Exodus chapter 20? Anybody remember? Out of the thunders and the lightnings, what did God give Moses? Yes, the law. So in direct correlation in verse five, with the flashes of lightning and the rumblings and the peals of thunder, we have the, the picture of the Holy Spirit and his perfection. So I want to show you just a few things about the ministry of the Holy Spirit and what this means, what this is a picture of. First of all, it gives us a picture of seven lamps, light, correct? What does the scripture tell us about what the Holy Spirit does? He is a searcher and an illuminator of sin. Look in John 16. In John chapter 16 and verse 4, Jesus says, and he's talking to his disciples, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asked me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, what will he do? He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. The word convict there means to rebuke and expose. The Holy Spirit will rebuke and expose. And how does he do that? Anybody? We just saw it. What does he use? What is the primary tool that the Spirit of God uses to convict sinners? Yes, but specifically, Exodus 20, right? The law. Paul says in Romans 7, 7, what shall we say then that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if, I, if it had not been for the law, what? I would have not known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. What is pictured here is Mount Sinai. The Holy Spirit is the illuminator and the convictor of sin. Secondly, he's the giver of life. 
I heard a message recently on John chapter three. Unfortunately, it was sad because as the speaker went through all 18 verses or the first 18 verses of John three could not define what regeneration is. Um, in his mind, regeneration was synonymous with believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. And his definition for believing on the Lord Jesus Christ was choosing to put your trust in Christ. How is one born again? Jesus said in John 6.33 or 6.63, it is the spirit that gives life. The flesh is what? No help at all. Let me say that again. The flesh is no help at all. These words are the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. In John chapter three, we find Jesus's conversation with Nicodemus. And in verse three, he says, Jesus answered Nicodemus after he comes to him by night and says, truly, truly, or verily, verily, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus says, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? This is a very basic illustration of truth, isn't it? What did you contribute to your birth? Did you tell your mom and dad, I want to be a boy? I want to be a girl. I want brown hair. I want blonde hair. I want blue eyes. I want green eyes. I'd rather be six foot nine or five foot eight. What did we contribute? It's very simple here. Nothing. Nothing. So how is one born again? Well, they make a profession of faith and they're born again. That's not. Titus 3.5 says he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Regeneration means being born again from the Greek, meaning rebirth, spiritual renovation. It is, as Jesus told Nicodemus, the wind blows where what you tell it to, blows where it will. Regeneration is the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit to give life to a dead man. What was missing in the message on John chapter three is the need for regeneration is why? Because the scripture says, and Paul says in Ephesians two, very clearly, you were what? Dead in trespasses and sins. Not just a sinner in the sense that, well, you told us white lies. No, you're dead, dead. It doesn't say on life support. It's, it's the insanity of thinking we could cut a, hole in our chest, take our heart out, and replace it, all while keeping ourselves alive. It's insane. But why, why do we mess that up? Because it feels good to say, well, I did something. I trusted. I believed. By grace are you saved through faith. And what? That, not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's amazing how belief becomes a work when we take the Holy Spirit out of the life-giving business, spiritually speaking. The Spirit of God, secondly, he is a giver of life. Thirdly, he is the indwelling teacher. For those that he has given life to, he teaches. John chapter 14, verse 7, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world, listen to this, cannot receive, despite their claims to be spiritual people, they can't receive the spirit of God. Why? Because he gives it to whom he will. It is not something on a shelf in a grocery store that, well, I'm going to go get a little Holy Spirit. Doesn't work that way. We don't schedule him. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him. For he dwells with you and will be in you. How do you know you're saved? There's no more important question than any of us can ask. <clears throat> How do you know you're saved? Is it written in the cover of your Bible? On this date, I made it. 
How do you know? How do you know? Scripture says when the Holy Spirit indwells us, it causes us to know him. John 14, 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. John 15, 26, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. How do we know that we belong to Christ? The answer is very simple. It has nothing to do with your profession that you made years and years and years ago. The very simple, straightforward, truthful answer, if men would be honest from the pulpit, is you know that you belong to God because his spirit indwells you. The spirit of God does not indwell us accidentally. He indwells us because he has given us life. And if, if he has given us life, he gives us assurance that we belong to him. We don't have to doubt. Have you ever heard somebody say, if you ask them, how do you know you're saved? Well, I hope I'm saved. If the spirit of God indwells us, he is teaching us. He is bearing witness to the truth within us so that we know we belong to him. Do you know this morning? Do you know without a shadow of a doubt? I didn't say, do you feel like a Christian today? But do you know the spirit of God indwells you? If you do, you should have no doubt or need not have any doubt that you belong to him. Why? Because the fourth thing I want to point out about the spirit of God, he is the sealer of the elect. Romans 8, 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone, listen, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Could it be any clearer? Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. That is the differentiator right there. Not which denomination you're in, not where you go to church. The differentiator is right there. Anyone that does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. In Ephesians 1.13, it says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were what? Sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. The word sealed in the Greek means to have a stamp of security or preservation that we belong to him. When the spirit of God takes up residence in our life, he seals us and stamps us and helps us to know that we belong to him. In our house, it is not unusual to see in our refrigerator the names of certain kids on certain food objects or products and by the right way reagan you still have some leftover chinese food in there um well why do why do kids put names on their food well in our house because it's going to get gone if you don't if you don't lay claim to it it will disappear the spirit of god puts his name on you as his child guess what you cannot disappear no one else can claim you and we will see how this works is we go through the book of Revelation. But if you belong to Christ, he's given you his spirit as a seal, a stamp of preservation. No one else can lay claim to you. You belong to him. First John 4, 13. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because what? He has given us his spirit. Verse 6. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. This is a, a pretty amazing picture here. As it were, a transparent sea of glass. I want you to see that this crystal sea here, as it's laid out before the throne, is a picture of God's sovereign salvation over humanity. You say, well, Danny, you're reaching there. Where do you get that? Well, let's let scripture interpret scripture again for us here. We've seen a picture of God, the Father, the Holy Spirit, the church. We'll see in just a few minutes, the angels, and I promise I will move briefly. This is a picture of creation. As they sing praises to God at the end of this chapter, they're exalting him for his great work of creation. I want you to see briefly that the sea, the picture of the ocean or the sea here, 
in a transparent sea of glass. What, what do you not see here? When you go, we all like the beach, right? We go there for vacations. We love it. It's refreshing, exhilarating. We love the smell of salty sea air. But what is it always doing when we look at it? Waves. Why? Have you ever seen, you know, I, our dad told me once that he saw the ocean frozen one time, which is got to be pretty cold to do that in New Jersey, of all places, not in the North Pole. But when you see the picture of the sea before the phone in a glassy calm, transparent and crystal clear, what is this a picture of? Well, Genesis 1, 21 reminds us that the sea was created. We all agree with that. The sea is created by God and he filled it with creatures. Genesis 1, 21. <clears throat> we also see in scripture that the sea is used to illustrate humanity. Where do, we get the, where do we get that from? Genesis 32, 12. But you said, I will surely do you good. Mark, you referenced this this morning. And make you the offspring or make your offspring as what? The sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. But Paul says in Romans 9, 27, commenting on Isaiah, he says, and Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, what? Only a remnant of them will be saved. Here's some other imagery from scripture, Isaiah 57, 20. But the wicked are what? Like a tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet and its waters toss up mire and dirt. Habakkuk 1.14, you make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. Jude in, in Jude verse 4, for certain people who have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 13, still commenting on these who have denied the Lord Jesus Christ, he calls them wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their shame. You remember Jesus as he's walking um, by the Sea of Galilee, sees two brothers fishing, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew, and they're casting a net into the sea. What does he tell them? And I will make you what? Fishers of men. Thirdly, the sea is pictured as calm because it's submitted and under the control of the sovereign command of God. Jeremiah 5.22, and I, I don't know if you guys saw it on the news, but this was the week for um, the United Nations um, session on climate activism in Egypt. And, of course, the world is coming to an end because man has not taken significant action. And, and if I was there, I would read him this one verse, Jeremiah 5.22. Do you not fear me, declares the Lord? Do you not tremble before me? I place the sand as a boundary for the sea, a perpetual barrier that it cannot pass, though the waves toss. They cannot prevail, though they roar. They cannot pass over it. Who calms the sea? In Mark chapter 4. Verse 35, on that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took with him, took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. Verse 37, and a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boats. And the boat was already filling, but he was in the stern asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. What is the picture of the sea in front of the throne? He has told it to be still. Now, we're seeing the wicked tossed to and fro everywhere we look. We're seeing the foam. We're seeing the churn of the surf. But this is a picture of humanity in its wickedness calmed before the throne. Say, well, how do, we, how do we do this or how do we see this? 
Look at Revelation 15. Then I, then I saw another sign in heaven. And when we get to Revelation 15, some of our kids will be graduated, but that's okay. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing. Seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last. For with them, the wrath of God is finished. And look, look at verse two. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass. Where are we reading about that? Revelation four. Mingled with fire. What is the picture of fire here? Judgment. Thank you. And those who had conquered the beast in its image and the number of its name standing. Look at where the saints, the saints are standing beside the sea. The saints are standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And look at what they're singing. If you haven't turned to Revelation 15, please do that. Verse 3 of Revelation 15. Why are the saints standing at the edge of the sea singing the song of Moses? What is the song of Moses? Exodus. You don't have to turn there. But in Exodus chapter 15, David or Moses writes a song. What is the song about in, in Exodus 15? It is summed up. And we know this song well. We've, we sang it in Sunday school. I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. What? The horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. But Revelation 15 says they're singing the song of Moses, the servant of God and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. The picture in Revelation 15, as it's showing the saints, on the edge of the sea of glass is that they have been rescued. Okay. Anybody know what Moses' name means? Exodus 2.10. I drew him out of the water. This is a picture of the redemption of Christ's people. Their rescue, if you will. That is why Revelation 15 shows them singing the song of Moses. What did God do with the sea? He commanded it to part. And, and Israel walked through on dry ground. And then he brought the waves down on top of Pharaoh and drowned him. Revelation 20, verse 13. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. From our vantage point, the wicked rage, they foam, they threaten. But from the throne, the control tower, if you will, of all eternity, they are subdued under the command of God. He is sovereign over all of it. Take comfort in that as we look around and see the wickedness around us. As the writers of scripture say, we live in a wicked, crooked, and perverted generation. Know that God is sovereign over the wickedness of mankind. 6b, and around the throne, and I promise I'm almost done. Around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes and behind. What are these living creatures? The living creatures are symbolic of the angels that attend the throne. In Revelation 5.11, it says, And I looked and heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. This is this takes us directly back to the Old Testament where we see the cherubim and the seraphim, do we not? In Burkhoff's systematic theology, he says this, cherubim are repeatedly mentioned in scripture. They guard the entrance of paradise. Think about this for a second. The cherubim guard the entrance of paradise. Why did they guard the entrance? And what, they guarded it with a sword, remember? After God expelled Adam and Eve from the garden, what did he do to make sure they couldn't bring their sin back in. He placed the cherubim there to protect the garden. He said they, they guard the entrance of paradise. They gaze upon the mercy seat, Exodus 25. 
they constitute the chariot on which God descends to the earth in 2 Samuel 22, 11. In Ezekiel 1 and Revelation 4, they are represented as living beings in various forms. These symbolic representations simply serve to bring out their extraordinary power and majesty. More than any other creatures, they are destined to reveal the power, the majesty, and the glory of God and to guard his holiness in the Garden of Eden, in tabernacle and temple, and in the descent of God to the earth. In Exodus 36, it tells us as they were constructing the tabernacle that the cherubim was to be engraved in um, the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. Why? Why did, why did the priests who were ministering daily when they walked into the holy place see the cherubim, the picture of the cherubim, engraved in the, the separation veil between them and the Holy of Holies. Well, it's called a sign, right? It's a sign. It's a warning sign that says you're only to come in here once a year. And the one that comes in here is not you. It's the high priest. There's a warning sign in Exodus 36. In Psalm 99.1, it says the Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits Throned upon the cherubim, let the earth quake. In Ezekiel chapter 6, in verses 1 through 6, we see the vision of Isaiah. And I won't take time to read it all, but we remember that picture. Isaiah sees God high and lifted up in the temple, and, and his immediate response is an awareness, an acute awareness of his sinfulness. And the angel the seraphim comes and takes a coal, cleanses his mouth, which is a picture of his sin being taken away as he sees this vision of God high and lifted up. And the picture in verse seven is the first living creature like a lion, the seven like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And there are all sorts of interesting rabbit trails that we can run down as we decipher these things and all the different commentators certainly weigh in. But again, this is a, these are pictures or symbols of what is happening in the heavenly throne room. <clears throat> and and I, I think it's fairly clear that these are characteristics are, or pictures of the angelic hosts in the presence of God. There's a picture here. We see the picture of a lion. What does is, what is the lion convey? Power, ferociousness. You see a young bull. What did, what, did, what did they do with young bulls? They hooked them up to heavy loads and pulled them. So there's a picture of servants. You see the or service. You see the picture of a man, meaning created intelligence. The eagle or the bird of prey executing God's command. And as we go through the book of Revelation, we're going to see who carries out the judgment of God on the earth. Know who it is? It's the angels. We'll see that clearly. So what is the application here as we finish up this morning? When we see everything from God's perspective, from the control tower of heaven, if you will, we can do nothing but stand in awe. We've lost that. We've lost that so much. I remember watching The Wizard of Oz when I was a little kid. Everybody see that? It took me years and years to realize that all the farmhands were actually the cowardly lion, the scarecrow. And I don't know why I didn't get that. But <clears throat> but you remember as, as they go down the yellow brick road, they make it all the way to the Emerald City. And they have, there's a sense of awe when you walk up to the Emerald City. They get inside and Toto pulls the curtain back. And it's a short little man making all the bells and whistles happen. And, and the picture of that movie back in the, what, the 30s or 40s is, is it's, it's an exaltation of American exceptionalism, right? You already have courage. You already have brains. And what's behind the great big curtain is really not that much to be in awe of. What we have lost 
in our culture, a sense of awe and wonder of coming into the presence of God. And I want you to, I want you to see this as these angels who are holy. Okay. These angels are sinless. They're perfect. What are they doing in the presence of God? What are they doing? They're falling down before God. They're covering their face. Because in their sinlessness, they're in awe of God. What are we? Next week, we're going to look at the picture of worship as it is portrayed in the throne throne room before God. And, And as I study this, I become more and more and more in awe of what God is showing us here. And this is lost on us. We come so flippantly into the presence of God sometimes. When we see things from God's perspective, it should leave us in awe and wonder at our creator. And while we are tempted to murmur and complain here in this life due to our very limited perspective, we'll see next week what a proper response to God and worship looks like and how it should prepare us as we come into the presence of God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We, we agree wholeheartedly, Father, that the law concludes us all under sin. And Lord, there are some among us that do not feel the weight of their sin. And as we read in your word this morning, it is only the Spirit of God that can convict of sin. No message, no pleading of parents or friends or loved ones can convince or convict of sin. We ask, Father, for the unregenerate that are among us this morning, that you might apply your word, that the weight of our sinfulness would be felt heavily so that we might cry out to you for deliverance. For the saints among us this morning, Father, help us to see from your perspective, to rest in the fact that you have saved us to the uttermost, that you are sovereign, that you are on the throne. That no matter what happens in this life, we are already victorious. We have already conquered through Christ. We look forward to your soon return, and we ask that you would come soon. Help us in the meantime, Father, lift up our gaze. Help us to glorify you in this time that we have. We ask these things in your name. Amen.